It's almost midnight. I'm sitting here in the dark on my phone and my computer, and I started at about 5 a.m. this morning. When my first daughter was born, my father offered to buy us a television. I declined. My husband was a little annoyed, but I was adamant. Screens would not dominate our family life. My older daughter didn't get her first phone until high school. I was that granola-baking, irritating mother who boasted about their children not knowing what a commercial or a Game Boy was. Then came laptops, smartphones, Netflix, YouTube, apps that teach you how to meditate, and podcasts that pipe bedtime stories right into your ear. Suddenly, my sanctimonious, screen-averse ass was taking my cell phone to bed with me, just in case insomnia struck. When my 13-year-old put an app on my phone to track my cell phone use, I wondered, what's going on? And what was this all doing to me and my family? Carol Lloyd here, and this is Like a Sponge, a podcast for parents about the science of learning. That voice you heard at the beginning of this episode? I need my cell phone for everything. That was me. That is me. We're talking today about digital media and what the latest science says about what it's doing to our brains, and more importantly, our children's brains. This morning, the problem that so many families are facing, kids getting too attached to their phones, Eight to 18-year-olds now spend as much time being entertained online as most adults spend at work. Digital devices. Smartphone screens 24-7. So obsessed with their phones that they're actually headed to rehab. Ten years ago, the first iPhone was released. Now the average kid gets their first smartphone at age 10. Try this thought experiment. Imagine the you from a decade ago, time traveling into the present to watch your family's current relationship to technology. What would you think? It's hard to overestimate how different our lives are now. So what does the science of learning have to say about all this digital technology? We conducted a survey of the literature of the last couple of decades, and the research is clear. Technology is affecting how we learn. For one thing, there's a pile of evidence that digital distractions hinder learning. One study, which asked students to take a test for 15 minutes, found that on average, kids couldn't concentrate for more than two minutes before being distracted by their technology. After 15 minutes, kids had spent over a third of the time distracted from the test. More recent research suggests that when no one's watching, kids' attention spans are even shorter. The average focus time before switching to another topic is five to 10 seconds. That's even while doing homework. Here's the bigger issue. It takes practice to develop the capacity to concentrate and not learning it has long lasting implications. One study by researchers at Duke University tested over a 1,000 children on their ability to pay attention regularly. The biggest childhood predictor of success? Their ability to concentrate. But it's not so simple as chucking the electronics to help your children fulfill their potential. After all, technology is like food in the modern world. It's a resource we all need to survive. 
Try finding a job, buying a used car, or self-diagnosing that weird rash on your arm without it. I needed someone to give me the lowdown. Hi, Yelda. Hi. Someone who could put How the mountains of research in perspective Good. How are you? and who wasn't taking sides. Yalda T. Uhls is a researcher at UCLA. She used to be a Hollywood executive at MGM, producing star-studded family movies. But something nagged at her. What was the effect of all this media on young minds? She said goodbye to the insider's world of media, went back to school to get her doctorate in developmental psychology, and became the ultimate outsider, pointing her microscope at the digital media our children are swimming in. She also wrote a book. Media Moms and Digital Dads, a fact, not fear, approach to parenting in the digital age. You know, I'm familiar with your book, but I got to reread it this week again, and it's really good. It sort of covers every possible concern, and it's just focused on what is the, what do the studies really say. And I really want to dive into the details here. So... Your chapters that deal with learning start with talking about a milestone article that came out that triggered an onslaught of media, that digital media is rewiring our kids' brains. And then it turned out it wasn't even a study about kids, but a study about elderly people in a journal of geriatric studies. So what's the real evidence that digital media is scrambling our kids' brains? Well... There is no real evidence still that it's scrambling our kids' brains. Um, the, the biggest thing that is important is everything we do in life affects our brain. When you do something more and more, you know, what fires together wires together. Right. It reminds me of the study about the, the London taxi cab drivers who have this yes. enormous part of their brain dedicated to spatial relations and they have to memorize this incredibly complex system for getting around London. And then when they retire, that part of their brain shrinks exactly. back to normal. Exactly right. So the good news is that our brain changes in reaction to what we do. So if there are, there are negative behaviors, you can change um, your behavior to something more healthy and um, your brain will change along with it. So what's the story about distraction? I know that anecdotally, people talk a lot about losing capacity to think deeply, stay focused on one thing, like reading a long novel, because uh, they attribute it to the use of digital media being designed for distraction. So what does the science say about this? Is there a, a wealth of research that digital media is leading to more distraction? There's no proof that we are more distracted as a nation or as a species than we were in the past. However, there is good evidence that, um, you know, using technology, having a mobile phone, having a, your laptop open during class when you need to focus is distracting. There was a study a few years ago where they looked at just having a phone on the table is distracting for two people that are conversing. They weren't even looking at it. And the people who had the phone on the table couldn't pay attention. So the phone is on the table. It's not ringing. No alerts or notifications are happening. It's just sitting there. And it's negatively affecting the ability to pay attention. This doesn't surprise me because I just heard this from a 17-year-old girl named Maya. You know, the other day I was 
trying to read a book, which my mother had laid out on the kitchen table for me as a hint that I should read a book. So I sat down to try and read it. And, you know, I had my phone on the table next to me and I just kept wanting to check it and check it. And so sometimes I do wish that I hadn't lost that ability to just read a book and not look at my phone. Like, I do wish I didn't have to be glued to it as much. I identify so much with Maya, that feeling that books, once one of my greatest pleasures, now present a cognitive challenge. But for kids like Maya who have grown up during the age of digital multitasking, the siren call of the cell phone has got to be even more seductive. That's tough, because the neuroscience has found that multitasking is for the most part a myth. Your brain can't think about two things at the same time. I ask Yalda whether the constant attempt to multitask was insidiously sapping our kids' productivity. A research study that we did where we tested for memory and understanding, in the multitasking condition, they got the same scores as the students who didn't have the ability to access the internet. They were totally focused on task. Their scores were the same. It just took a little longer. That was not a high intense task, you know, it was it was not that challenging for these college students. So when students were given a task of moderate difficulty, the multitasking students performed as well as the ones who were wholly focused on the task. But when the task was harder, the results told a different story. We had students write a essay that required pretty intense ability to look at different um, kinds of uh, source materials and come up with an argument. And the multitasking condition seriously affected their final score. They got a full grade less. If you're distracted on your phone while you're trying to write something where you really do have to think and focus, you're going to do worse. As a parent, these studies about multitasking and distraction are hugely useful. If you know your kid is trying to do something cognitively difficult, then you bring down the hammer and eliminate distractions. But if it's busy work, then maybe streaming Hamilton YouTube videos for the hundredth time will not harm your child's chances of graduating high school. But the conversations about distractions don't answer that big looming question most of us parents grapple with. Screen time. For decades, researchers have been finding connections between hours of screen time and health and behavioral issues. For instance, more screen time hours are associated with high obesity and diabetes rates. But what about learning? The evidence on the relationship between time spent on screens and academic achievement has been harder to find. Until now. Last year, Stephanie Ruest, a pediatrician, completed a study at Brown University School of Public Health looking at how much time kids spend on screens and how likely they were to get their homework done. There's really sort of a paucity of data out there about how digital media exposure impacts learning and um, homework, schoolwork, engagement in learning and interest in new things. Ruest used data from the National Survey of Children's Health, a telephone survey of 64,000 parents and caregivers who had answered questions about their children's emotional, physical and behavioral health. Then she looked at correlations between screen time and behaviors connected to academic achievement. 
What's interesting is almost 36% had two to four hours total daily digital media time, 17% four to six hours, and almost 17% over six total hours per day, which is quite a bit considering how much time they spend in school and theoretically sleeping. For every two hours that a child is on media per day, she saw a negative relationship between screen time and something known as childhood flourishing which is a concept social scientists have defined in different ways that try to sum up a child's emotional and cognitive well-being. For this survey, they asked the parents five questions. How often in the past month their child does all of their required homework? How often they appear to care about doing well in school? How often they finish tasks that he or she starts and then follows through with what he or she will say they'll do, how often he or she stays calm and in control when faced with new challenges, and how often they show interest and curiosity in learning new things. So what Ruest found was that for all five of these questions of childhood flourishing, kids with more screen time did worse. For children who have two to four hours of digital media exposure per day, they have 23% lower odds of always or usually finishing their homework compared to the kids with less than two hours. If you go to four to six hours per day, they have 49% lower odds of finishing their homework. And those with above six hours have 63% lower odds of finishing homework compared to children with less than two hours per day. So translate that for me a little bit in terms of the odds. Like, you know, out of a five-day week, 23% is like one day they don't get their homework done? Right. A, a quarter a quarter percent less likely. So for four days, there may be one day less that they would uh, complete their homework. That's an incredible amount of not finishing their homework. I actually am totally shocked. That's extreme. Yeah. Of course, you might be one of those parents who don't think finishing your homework should be a measure of your child's flourishing. But childhood flourishing also includes things like curiosity and motivation. And think about that group of super media users whose odds of finishing their homework are 63% lower. That means going to school unprepared three out of five days a week. So who are these kids who are glued to their devices, who most days are arriving at school empty-handed? And what might be the connection between excessive screen time and the more than 60% of American K-12 students who are not working at grade level? When we think about excessive screen use, certain stereotypes come to mind. Boys who are obsessive gamers or internet junkies. Even kids who aren't addicted to gaming go to great lengths to get their time in. Here's a boy talking about dealing with his mother's rule that he's off screens by 9 a.m. on the weekends. During the weekend, I generally wake up at about 5 and play video games until 9. But there's another profile of digital media dependence that's just as common, one we might not even recognize in our own kids, until it gets serious. She is really an addict in the sense that she cannot stop herself from using social media and it becomes completely obsessive. Eileen has been battling her daughter over technology for years. 
She bought her her first cell phone in sixth grade for safety issues, but it wasn't long before the digital device became a source of endless conflict. She lies, steals phones, hides things, has multiple accounts, many personalities. She started out sexting when she was about 12 just with the texting to boys, and it quickly escalated to being in social media. And then she had these like long conversations about what people would do to her and what she'd do to them. And it was just weird. Eileen's daughter's issues are intense, but often they were also under the radar. Addictive digital behavior with women and girls looks very different. Research has found that females tend to do a lot more social media posting, online shopping, sexting, and texting. Instead of offering kids a simulated reality, it connects them to an outside world which is all too real and potentially very scary. Eventually, it came to a head when her daughter arranged to meet a guy at a local mall, and he sent her questions in advance about her HIV status. And I was like, wow, this is not just meeting somebody friendly at the mall. This is someone who wants something. At another point, the girl decided she was in love with a guy living on the other side of the country. While she was dreaming of a trip to meet him, he began asking her for money. Again, Eileen took away her daughter's phone and computer, but she knows that doesn't turn back the hands of time and undo her daughter's experience. I worry terribly about her. I'm also very sad that when I see the kinds of conversations that are happening, that she doesn't see that they're terribly abusive and sexist and misogynist or, you know, they're just awful. I think about how technology can be used for building friendships and being kind to each other and you know, sharing happy moments. And that's not at all how her online world is. I just think it's really sad. And and it can't be good for her state of mind to be living in that little virtual world. Eileen's story is extreme, but also archetypical. Online life is the new wilderness of youthful risk. Every parent I know worries about their kids' use of personal technology and how it affects their ability to thrive. For these kids, the definition of distraction isn't a quiet device sitting on a table, but a Pandora's box teeming with tween and teen drama. For 17-year-old Maya, her beloved devices are the source of a lot of conflict at home. Her mother, in particular, tries to get her to put down the phone and read a book, get outside. But here's the thing. Kids are not the only ones who have unhealthy dependency issues. My parents get mad if I'm looking at my phone while they're talking to me, but sometimes I'll be talking to them and they'll be looking at their phone. My mom plays this game, Words with Friends. She'll be playing that and I'll try to talk to her. And then she just keeps playing and it kind of hurts that she's not really listening. And I don't think she's trying to hurt me, but I just think that the phone, it's addicting. It's hard to look up once you're on it. I sympathize with Maya and her mom. I just had this conversation with my own teenager who was after me about being on my phone. So I asked someone I thought might be able to help me better understand how our behavior as parents is influencing our kids. If you ask parents, almost 80% of them believe that they walk the walk. That's Michael Robb, the director of research for Common Sense Media. Common Sense is a nonprofit that rates and reviews movies, apps, books, and releases regular research about how kids are using and sometimes abusing technology. But recently, Common Sense Media has embarked on asking another question. 
What are parents doing with their screens? We collected data from almost 2,000 parents from across the country to understand what their media habits and attitudes were. And what we found was that parents, like their children, are consuming a, a lot of media. And in fact, on, on any given day, more than nine hours a day with screen media, and about 82% uh, of that time is personal screen media, so media outside of work. A lot of people, you know, when they hear that number, their heads kind of explode. <laughs> they don't realize that some of that is because people are using more than one form of media at a time. You could be watching TV while, you know, being on your smartphone. You might only be taking one hour out of your day, but you're consuming two hours worth of media. Wow. And how does that compare to their children? It's pretty close. <laughs> you know, when you look at teen and tween use, it's roughly about the same amount of time. Do you feel like we're, as a society, too focused on limiting kids' screen time? Or do you feel like we're too focused on giving them access to media? I think as a society, we focus too much on time. And the word screen time itself is one that has probably outlived its usefulness. Because when you talk about screen time, you lump everything together as if it was all equal in terms of its impact. And I don't think that's true. Right? So I don't think watching TV is the same thing as being on Facebook, which is not the same thing as playing a video game. And yet we often just kind of go like, how much time are people spending? Michael Robb recommends a sort of formula for making sense of screen time issues. Content and context. It's good, I think, for parents to be able to understand a little bit more about the effects of different kinds of content, the good stuff versus the bad stuff. I think it's important to understand the context of use. When your kids are watching something, are parents there to talk about it afterwards, to provide some additional discussion, or even things like, is it something that happens at home versus at school or by yourself, right? That context of use is really important. In other words, screen time is an outdated way of looking at this, but it's also the quality of the time spent. Still, the fact remains, we might not be the role models for our kids that we think we are, especially in the early years. For some educators, like Tara Lenzel, the shift in the last decade has been a radical departure from what was once considered normal. So I teach in a toddler classroom in a small preschool in New York. And for most of them, it's their first school experience. And so we have a phase in during the first week of school where a parent or other familiar family member is required to come to school with their child and spend a couple hours in the classroom with them as they get acclimated to the classroom. And when I first started working at this school 16 years ago, parents really engaged in that process without really having to tell them to. And I would say within the past five years or so, I really saw a drastic shift in that all of the parents and family members were seated around the edge of the classroom and everybody was engaged in technology. They either had their phone out or an iPad. Someone even had their laptop out and was working on their laptop. And then the, they weren't really paying attention to the children and certainly not engaging with the children or the teachers or each other. And the kids are seeing this. And the kids are seeing this happening. Exactly. So it was really sort of modeling, A, this place is not that interesting, and B, not showing that kind of like active engagement in the environment and the people around you. 
Taris spends a lot of time trying to explain to parents the value of engaging with their child's experience during the first week. But but then the, a connection is not necessarily made between that and how quick we are to just pull our cell phones out all the time and just be texting or checking Facebook or sending a message or, you know, whatever it is. I had a, a professor a long time ago use this metaphor of, like, the last thing that's ever going to see the water is the fish. In other words... As parents, we may not notice what we're doing day in and day out and how that might be affecting our kids. Ironically, there's now an app for that, one that my 13-year-old downloaded on my phone to measure my screen time. Okay, so you've been on it for three hours and 12 minutes, and then you picked it up 32 times? I oh picked God. it up 32 times. Oh, my God, that's oh so that's so depressing. And they say that you... Yikes. Schooled by my child once again. Unconscious screen time is a slippery slope, straight to a sea of terror Twitter wars and videos of cats versus cucumbers. <coughs> but used with intention, technology can be a launching pad for moments of learning that would have otherwise been impossible. Bob Marley's daughter did a picture book that goes along with the One Love song. That's Tara, the preschool teacher in New York. I put that book on the bookshelf, and they just loved it. So I was like, guys, you know what? This book's actually a song. The kids ended up listening to the song on the iPhone and watching concert footage on the iPad, which then turned into a group project making instruments, drums out of oatmeal canisters, guitars out of Legos, and putting on concerts. They'd snap like a tower of Legos like this with a little bit of their shirt snapped in between the Legos. So it would hang on their shirt so that they could pretend it was a guitar like on a strap. The technology was bound up in that, but I feel like it wasn't a distraction. It was something that gave them an in to this topic that they were fascinated in. But then really what they did was like their whole own kind of creative, hands-on, thinking outside the box way of engaging with it. outside the box. That's kind of the perfect metaphor. Technology may give our kids a box full of wonderful tools, but to learn anything, they have to move beyond it and add the most important ingredient, their minds. The science of learning tells us about technology's potential to help and harm our kids in the abstract, but in the end, it's really our choice how we weave it into our family life. And if your family's fallen into a screen time hole... Take a page from the IT handbook. You can always restart using wisdom from the mouths of babes. What screen time rules should we have? I think we should have a table where we put all our devices before we go to sleep so that you're not staying up late on Mm -hmm. your phone. Anything else? No devices at the table because... You're always doing research or whatever, so you're not allowed to do that. Okay. All right, so we've got two rules. Any other rules? Um, don't go on your phone if it's not important. 
Yo, put your phone down for a second, dude. Excuse me, sir, could you please put your phone down? You're not walking straight. You're stumbling around. You're in public, man. You're being kind of rude. Your text messages are not that important, dude. Excuse me, lady, could you please put your phone down? You're talking too loud like nobody's around. I'm sure your friend can wait to hear what you have to say. I don't want to know that much about your day. You've been listening to Like a Sponge. If you enjoyed what you heard, take a minute, rate it, and review it on iTunes. It'll help others find us. Special thanks to Yalda T. Uhls, Stephanie Ruest, Michael Robb, and Tara Lenzel. Thanks also to Maya, Amelia, Eileen, and the other adults and kids who talked with us about their family's relationship to technology. This episode of Like a Sponge was produced by Carol Lloyd, Will Rogers, and Charity Ferreira for Great Schools. Thanks to the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York and our managing editor, Jessica Kelman. To learn more, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge.